Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over on the Rab, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can now listen to on the Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. Uh, he and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, August 13th, 2023. But a day or two ago, you got a box in the mail, Drew. Is that correct? I got a box in the mail, a mysterious box from go. the woods. It just said the woods and I said, go. oh my god what is jim sending me and of course my wife who wants nothing in the house said oh my god what is jim sending you yeah. and what it was it was a box mm-hmm. because a few episodes ago we had talked about runaway brain and mm-hmm. the lack of merchandise and jim said wait a minute no they made something fairly recently mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. runaway brain it's not it's not very good but mm-hmm. and so you sent me a box of magazines and what is the name of this magazine? This is the Disney Sketches Magazine, which was the quarterly newsletter that supported the old Walt Disney Collectors Society. Do, do you remember these, the statues? No, I don't. And that, and I was so shocked. I mean, I, to me, in my memory, in mm-hmm. my COVID, post-COVID brain, mm-hmm. you know, 2009 is fairly recent. But <laughs> when did this start? And like, what was the purpose of this group? Well, again, it was during this time, I want to say it got underway 94, 93, 94. They had talented folks like Bruce Lau. And what they would do is they would create these sculptures, limited edition. I mean, you know, some of them were as low as 500 pieces, 700 pieces. But they would recreate memorable moments for various Disney animated teachers. And... It, it was one of these things where, well, as I was mentioning to you last night when you were like, what did you send me and why? This was <laughs> one of those things where, you know, kind of classic Disney, they made money. I mean, they made, you know, they had fan events. I mean, in fact, that's the thing of one of the reasons I sent it to Drew is these newsletters are full of, you know, articles by Disney writers like Jim Fanning, and there's lots of great little tidbits, but... Again, they'd have signings, and but the problem was Disney wanted money, and they were getting money. In the end, it's like, eh, you know, it's you know, we're not getting enough money. And I want to say, two and three years before it kind of blew itself out in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, Disney farmed out the creation of the figures and that sort of thing to Ionesco. And I mean, don't get me wrong, even the latter figures, some of them are really appealing. But how many people are sitting at home and it's like, oh, you know, I just, you know, would brighten up this room. A mad Madam Mim. You know, it's just like, where, where can yes. I can, where can I get one of those? And it's like, oh, how many three caballeros can I fit yeah. in this apartment? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you remember the old Disney store, on Fifth Avenue, when you went up to the third floor, the, the what they referred to as the attic space, there was off to the left these cabinets where they, they displayed the latest figures and, you know, yep. be- beautifully lit. And, I mean, it was just sort of like you'd look into the glass and go, I didn't know I wanted that, but I want that. But, yeah, it's, God, you know, the, the, we are 15 years out from this having been a an active thing at Disney, but I, I just, again, I was 
building a set of my own of the Disney sketches, and I wound up with multiples and duplicates, and it was one of the things that, you know, whose house can I clutter up? So, oh, Drew, Drew Taylor. <laughs> no, it's amazing, and you're right. It's amazing. People don't understand how easy and often you could work as a writer because there were so many more avenues to actually publish Mm -hmm. editorial content, including in a, who would have thought a magazine Mm -hmm. for collectible figurines? I mean, it's just like, we, we really were living in a, in a golden era. Well, and the other reason I, you know, again, knowing you are working on your nineties Disney thing, you know, there are so, you know, and that's a lovely thing is that, this is one of those magazines that's done in real time. So it's like, oh, by the way, you know, we're getting a cruise line up out of the ground. And oh, oh, by the way, we're going to build a second theme park next to Disneyland. And, and never mind that the Ollie Johnsons and the Frank Thomases of the world were still around. So, you know, for example, you, you have moments where like a Bruce Lau sits down and talks with Frank and Ollie about Bambi, which just today, August 13th, 81st anniversary of, of it being released to theaters. Wow. I love Bambi so much. My, <laughs> when I was in my mother's stomach, she n- nicknamed me Thumper. So, you know, that's that's my connection with Bambi. I was a kicker. Wow. But Jim, I wanted to show you something mm-hmm. that I got on eBay recently. And okay. I want to show it to you and tell me mm-hmm. what, if you can see what it is. Do you know that logo? Disney Development Company. Oh, yes. no. Yes. Wow. A, okay. Yeah, a, a hat from, well, you know, there's there's some sweat stains. Well, of course there's some sweat. It was a well-loved hat. Wow. But I, I am obsessed with the Disney Design, Development Company, as you know. And, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. Now, that was Ken Wong's duchy, right? Uh, was it Ken Wong or or Wing Chow? Ooh, I think you're right. Uh, Wing Chow. Yeah. Because just recently was hearing stories about, you know, the effect of we're in charge of the hotels and you're in charge of the theme parks and never the twain shall meet. Except, of course, when we build a, a theme park over the entrance of a park. Right. Well, it's just, it, it was also inspiring by, you mm. know, you, you, you and Len talking about some of the these you know the first dvc hotel and things like that when it was like the hotels really did have personality they really had a point of view and you you had people like bob stern and michael graves designing these things i mean it was really an amazing period and now we have these completely anonymous towers and it's just depressing i mean somebody said that the grandestino looked like the inside of a mega church <laughs> And I said, you know what? That is true. I mean, that, you know, say what you will about the Swan and Dolphin, but man, those are those are statement pieces. Yeah, they are. They are. In fact, <laughs> somebody was just posting. They were driving along the perimeter road by the Magic Kingdom and went by the ongoing construction of the the DVC next to the Poly, and that's a great looking collection of wet cardboard boxes at one of, at one of the most beautiful most intricately themed resorts. I mean, I think that the Poly kind of lost its mojo when those stupid cabanas were put up over the water and those beautiful views. And I remember seeing so many people getting married out there. And, you know, it's just like, man, chasing that that dollar, Jim. I know. You know? I know. And and trust me, if they can ever come up with 
a construction technique that prevents, you know, the, the building from sinking down like Atlantis. That chunk of land where, what is it, uh, the Venetia was supposed to be built and then mm-hmm. the Mediterranean. I mean, the, that parcel that you, I think you can actually see it when you, you hop on the monorail and, and begin the, the Magic Kingdom loop rather than the, the resort loop. They used to, didn't they used to refer to that parcel of land on the monorail spiel well you know that coming soon and yeah. <laughs> you know come back every, it seems like every few years i mean didn't um, about five or six years ago they were thinking about a magic kingdom oh uh, yeah now were, were you and lynn saying you can't get from the poly to the ttc anymore or what what's the story they were doing construction on a couple of the wings of the Grand Flow. And so the walkway, again, it was literally blocked off because of this construction. My understanding is that it has since they've completed the construction, you can still do the death march over to the Magic Kingdom if you, you feel strongly about it. In fact, you know, yeah, perhaps Mr. Test and I, when we're next in Florida, will will attempt to finish the stroll. But, but can you get from the Poly to the TTC still? Because that was always a big draw. Right? It was like that. It was so close. Yep. You, you can still do that. It's just, you know, if you finished at the kingdom and you don't like how long the lines are for, say, the launches that are going to the poly and the grand flow, you can now, you have the option of walking, you know, around Seven Seas Lagoon and making your way through the flow and then, you know, past the, okay. the new villa and then finally, you know, back to your hotel. But. I'm getting sweaty just thinking about this, Jim. But, as yeah, you so. should. As you should. And and but I also want to remind you folks that this is an animation news podcast, which of course we have not touched on in the slightest on, on you know for the first ten minutes of the show. So and before we get to the news, I want to remind you folks that uh the news portion of fine tuning is brought to you by Turing Plans Travel. If again, if you're headed to Walt Disney World, these are the folks you want to chat with, and not and not just because if you book a package with them, they'll toss in a free copy of, of Touring Plants. If you you are in fact headed to Florida, Central Florida, anytime soon, please check these folks out at touringplants.com/backslash/travel. Okay, to jump into it. Let's start with the obvious. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles seems to be doing well over its second weekend in theaters. In fact, what was kind of interesting is the stuff I was reading earlier this morning, Drew, suggested that one of the reasons that the last voyage of the Demeter, the most recent Universal... Are we still calling them Dark Universe movies? or They're not the Dark Universe anymore. I would say they are just like monsters. Classic monsters. Too. Okay, okay, but yeah, but they were actually saying that one of the reasons that this classic new classic monster movie underperformed at the box office because Mutant Mayhem had a, a far stronger hold in its second weekend than anybody ex- expected. But speaking of strong holds at the the box office, what do you make of the stories just over the past week about Elemental? At this point, it's. million in ticket sales domestic, which, remember, when this thing opened back in June and it only sold $29.6 million worth of tickets in North America, everybody basically immediately wrote this off. I don't know. There's a part of me that is very happy for Peter Song. It's like the entertainment press was so quick 
to write off this film and, you know, another flop from Pixar. And I mean, did you see the interview, for example, with Jim Morris, uh, a president of Pixar in Variety earlier this week? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I am so happy that this movie, you know, got to 400 million. I don't think it's probably not going to make money, but it will certainly not be losing money now, which is, you know, what. Every movie, (laughs) the goal is. But, you know, even, you know, I was seeing, like, Mm -hmm. photos of uh, the uh, new, you know, the Mm re-themed Pixar Hotel in Mm -hmm. Disneyland. And they have an ember, like, fireplace. Like, it's her head, you know. No. And it's like, oh, wow, they're already, like, kind of integrating these characters in in a really lovely way. And... Yeah, the movie is super charming. If you haven't seen it, it's mm-hmm. still in theaters. Go see it. It's on digital later this month. Mm-hmm. So if you want to wait and watch it in the comfort of your room, mm-hmm. that is fine too. But yeah, I mean it was I think it's I think it was very telling that that they got Jim out in front of this to say like, "Listen, we're still around and we can take the hits and you know, it's like I'm so glad you said that because I, I want to say it's Rebecca Rubin over at Variety that did this interview and first of all Jim went on record at saying at this point Elemental should do better than break even theatrically and then he made a point of saying and remember we also have revenue coming in from streaming the theme parks and consumer products you know so Elemental will certainly be pro- a profitable movie for the Disney company though as you pointed out this is easy to say, given what's going on overseas. I want to say, what is it, uh, $276 million, which is, you know, how we get to over 400 Though what was interesting is that Morris himself said, I think, you know, we're going to make it to $450 million, you know, maybe 460 you know, it's a... He seemed wistful that $500 million worldwide would seem to be out of reach for Elemental. But then he talked about why Pixar movies are as expensive as they are. And again, it was one of these things I'm sitting there reading this is like, Drew is going to be so happy because this is literally Jim Morris saying exactly what Drew has been saying the whole time to the effect of one of the ways you make these films for less money, and almost all of our competitors do this, is to do work offshore. It's only us and Disney Animation who make animated films in the United States anymore with all of the artists under one roof. We feel like having a colony of artists approach uh, it differentiates our film. So it was like, hey, cool. George's been saying that forever. So it's, just, yeah. it's nice to have yeah. somebody else put that on record. Now, when you, you think about a Ruby Gilman, uh, Teenage Kraken, or a, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, Mutant Mayhem, which, by the way, both supposedly cost $70 million to make, or a Super Mario Brothers movie, which reportedly costs $100 million to make. Again, when you hear an Elemental cost 200 that gives you pause. But Jim goes on to explain, it's like our whole company exists to only make these movies. So when we say a budget... That means everything it takes to run the whole company. And sometimes the budgets that get reported for those animated films are physical production costs, but they don't include the salaries of the executives and things like that. And Pixar budgets include all of that. So as he puts it, some accounting context gets lost, but that doesn't mean they're not expensive. And he also went on to cite that when it comes to Elemental, one of the reasons this film was especially expensive 
was because you know, virtually every character in it is a walking visual effect. Wade's water, Ember's fire, Claude is dirt, grass, whatever. Claude was the cheap one. <laughs> sure. He just had to be a little rock. Well, there you go. <laughs> but, uh, and I know we've talked about Elio a couple episodes back and, and the challenges from a financial point of view with that film. I did want to share something, though, that Josh Gad told me off air. Josh was going to have to co-host Disney Dish while Len was away on his, his Disney cruise. But he talked about what he'd been hearing about Elio. And basically, he said, you know, I've been hearing this is a real return to form for uh, for Pixar. In fact, that he, you know, what he's hearing is Elio is like up or inside out quality, which I would argue Luca and, and turning red are at that point as well. Absolutely. And soul. Yep. Yep. And, and in fact, Jim Moore's in, again, this interview in Variety bears out this point as well, that they are continually hearing from Burbank about you need to lower costs. In fact, you know, that that Bob Iger just this past week during the earnings call actually told the investment community, we are working on bringing down our cost per title for both theatrical as well as the stuff we're doing for Disney+. Plus. So that's, again, I just, I keep hearing this same drumbeat about Elio that the story team has basically had to defend every single shot of the movie because, I mean, the concept of the movie is a Earth kid gets snatched and, and is taken to an intergalactic version of the UN. And so it's like every single character in this thing is a different alien species, which means a different animation rig. For example, compared to Elemental, where, where you've got what? four species that, that live in, in the Elemental mm-hmm. City. You know, you've got dozens upon dozens. And, and never mind the fact that this, this is largely set out in deep space. So every so often there's a giant vista that you have to fill with stars and moons and planets. And you just feel for the, you know, the poor bastards there because, again, they're trying to get this movie out the door at a time when, you know, pressure's coming from Burbank, which in turn... The folks at Pixar are trying to be responsive. You know, they're trying to be good corporate citizens. And this movie still has to be ready for a March 1st release date next year. So have you been hearing anything in regard to Ilio? Or? Uh, yeah, I've been hearing that there, it's, you know, I think it's in the past six months has been going through the usual kind of Pixar speed bumps, mm-hmm. you know. But I think that, you know, they've recorded all the dialogue they can before this strike. So hopefully they're good to go in terms of that. Mm -hmm. You know, we saw, we saw Mm Spider-Verse three get, get bumped because they hadn't recorded any dialogue yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I mean, I'm very hopeful. I also think that, that Elio will probably support a robust consumer products campaign, which uh, Elemental did not just, I I think just because there were so few characters maybe uh, in it, but um, so I think that can offset things. I was a little worried, you know, I don't know how much of the, about Iger's uh, earnings call we're going to talk about. But, you know, him saying, you know, that we've still got to we've really got to double down on all the IP and all the brands and stuff. And it's just like if there was ever an opportunity to kind of like rebuild the company mm-hmm. with smaller 
movies and bigger ideas within those movies, now would be the chance. But it just seems like they're going to just keep leaning on what what do we have in the vault? What do we got? Let's trot out whatever. Another Lion King movie. It's like, aye, vey. But, yeah. We all know that that before Haunted Mansion was anything, it was just some idea that a bunch of guys had in a room. Like, we have to... They, the company really needs to get back to that, and I think that they'll attract better talent when they do. It's almost, almost the touchstone kind of model. Mm. Uh, not to always bring it back to the no, no, 80s no, and no, 90s, no, but, no. Yeah. I mean, that was what was fascinating about the early touchstone years. I mean, there was a little tight financial box, and again, the joke was Disney would lurk outside of the exit door for the Betty Ford Center, and you know, whatever celebrity had just finished, you know, detoxing, they would grab for a bargain price and. You look at how often they used Bette Midler or Robin Williams or, you know, in, in very early on there, to great effect, by the way. But those films yes. were ridiculously tightly budgeted and had really aggressive schedules. And and they made money hand over fist. And at the same time, think about how many of those were dialogue-driven comedies or, you know, these days it's... You know, the conversation still is, well, you know, how will this play in China? You know, too much dialogue. You know, I need something with explosions. So, But if you're telling me that if you if you had put Prey mm-hmm. out in the theaters, you're telling me that wouldn't have made money. And that is a modestly budgeted period sci-fi thriller. And it's so good. And it, it would have made it, a ton of money. It, I just... Well, you know, again, so interesting. We were just talking about The Last Voyage of the Demeter. And, you know, you put those two projects side by side. And again, it's it, it's one of those things where if you strip the, both those projects down to their, their elevator pitch, they both sound, you know, like really fun. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, I want to see that movie. But Prey has such brilliant execution where you, you you were just <laughs> describing how you wanted to put Nova front and center to explain, you know, the, you know, it's like, this demeanor is the dog of the week, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I just, I, something, when you look at Prey and how confident it is, but at the same time, what a smart reinvention it is of the whole Predator franchise. And yeah. it, it's like, ooh, I want to see another one of those. Yeah. When can we get it, yeah. please? Yeah. But it's it's just so smart mm-hmm. and so well done. And and I encourage anyone, any of our listeners who are Emmy voters, please. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you yeah, haven't yeah, watched no. it, give, watch it. Give that some love. It, you know, and we'd love to revisit that world. And oh, speaking of, of revisiting thing, again, we, we start off at the top saying how mm-hmm. how happy Drew and I are for, for Peter Sam about, you know, the how the the story that people are telling about Elemental has turned around. And if you follow Peter on social media, and by the way, you can do this if you go to X Twitter or whatever you're calling it. That's P-E-T-S-O-W-N. Peter is now enjoying what's going on with Elemental. I mean, he's he's sharing images of people who are cosplaying as Wade and Ember or fan art. In fact, just this morning, he put up, somebody has this amazing tattoo of a sad Wade. And he, you know, and Peter posted, I may be biased, but may I say that is the greatest tattoo in history. 
That's pretty funny. I just looked at that. That is good. <laughs> yeah, you know. So it's just I, I get really, really just good. so I'm so happy for Peter who has put in his time up in Emeryville, and the fact that this is now. I mean, Jim Morris himself is saying we're going to make money on this, and it's a success, and so. Okay, t time for the next Peter Som movie, which, <laughs> if what's going on coming in from Disney is any indication, will have a budget of about $5. So, folks, we have spent an awful lot of time on the first half of today's show talking about Disney and Pixar. And when we get back, we will change the topic. Uh, in fact, we'll be talking about a number of things you should be doing this summer before Labor Day gets here uh, that relates to animation. I want to remind you folks that Drew and I are recording this week's fine-tuning on Sunday, August 13th. We are just three weeks out from Labor Day uh, 2023, which, which happens on Monday, September 4th. And, and Now, Drew, there's a lot of cool stuff to do in L.A., and in fact, you're, you and Katie are doing something cool tonight, right? The Tron Legacy uh, screening? Yeah, they did a, they've been doing a 3D film retrospective at the Academy Museum. Mm -hmm. um, which next time you're out, Jim, mm -hmm. we need to go. I've never even gone to the museum. I've only gone to screenings, so we have to go next time you're yeah, you're out. I um, know, I know. We gotta say see Bruce and you know mm -hmm. walk around. But so they're doing a, a 3D exhibition of um, mm -hmm. Tron Legacy, which is wonderful. Has one of the best uses of 3D ever. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very excited to to go visit my friends on the grid. Uh, I would not be surprised if. The strikes are being used as context to cancel the third movie, but that's just my conspiracy theory. Uh, but yeah, because we we had five weeks ago at least preliminary announcements about casting and that sort of thing. Right? Yeah, yeah, a lot of yeah. I think Evan Peters and a couple other people, but yeah, we'll see. Okay. We'll see what happens. All right. Well, again, that's tonight. And again, sorry, folks, you're hearing this on, on, on Tuesday, August 15th. You missed it. But on the other hand, if you're looking for something interesting to do in L.A. next Sunday, August 20th, Becky Klein, the director of the Walt Disney Archive, will be at Walt's Barn, which is at 5202 Zoo Drive in Griffith Park, uh, Drew, have you ever been to, to, to Walt's Barn? I have. I have. I... Actually, the last time I was there, I mm. think Bob Gurr was there signing copies of his book. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was years and years ago, but mm -hmm. it's a really, really fun, cute thing that happens the third Sunday there we go. of every month mm -hmm. at Griffith Park over in the kind of travel town section. Yep, yep. There's a, one, of, one of Walt's train cars mm -hmm. is there. You can go in. There's a little diorama. You can walk around. There's ponies mm -hmm. or something, you know. And it's just a lovely way to spend a Sunday morning for, you know, an hour or two and really rich history. And that, that whole area is so fun. Oh, no, 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 totally. I, I do love that that aspect of L.A. Uh, but uh, Drew's not wrong. This Again, the, uh, coming up uh, August 20th is the third Sunday of the month. And just as you mentioned with the Bob Gurr signing, Becky Klein is going to be there with author... Paula Sigmund Lowry, and the two of them are going to be signing copies of The Story of Disney, A Hundred Years of Wonder, which, by the way, I mean, again, you can order this from Shop Disney, you can order this from Amazon. I do want to point out that the Barnes & Noble version has extra content. So, you know, if you're 
you're a completist. You might want to be going for that. This will be the real story of, of Walt Disney. The story of him, you know, putting <laughs> cigarettes out, <laughs> cigarettes out on people's arms and stuff like that. that you'll get all the good dirt. In this one. That didn't happen. At, Another Scotch Miss has a hazel. You know, it's like all right. Yes. All right. Yeah. Speaking of Disney Hundred. The Disney 100, the exhibition, which opened at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia back on February 18th, is shutting its doors on August 27th. A stateside version of this is next reportedly headed to Chicago, though I'll be damned if I can find a date or a venue. And then after that, it's supposed to be headed to Kansas City. Since I can't find any info about when it's going to be in Chicago or when it's going to be in Kansas City, Nancy and I are actually driving down to Philly this coming weekend to check out the exhibit. And then after that, we're going to head over to Redding's Terminal Market to get a cheesesteak. And I, I have a question for our, our Philadelphia listeners. Ever since Rick's original Philly steak closed at the Terminal Market back in October 2008, I don't know where to go. For a real Philly cheesesteak. Well, so, oh. there's those two that are like next door to each other that like compete oh. with each other. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, this. I'll get you the information. But Thank you. yeah. Okay. There's also Jim a you'll never believe it a tiki bar in Philadelphia that is actually very fun that I went to the last time I was there. So I will get you that information. Oh, don't as well. don't do this to me. I'm supposed to be only in Philly for a day. In fact, the, the very next day we're driving up to Dorney Park. Again, the, the Disney Unpacked thing that Lennon and Jim Shul and I are doing, at one point we're going to be doing a show about Mater's Junkyard Jamboree, and I need to get images and, and video of they have one of the uh, one of the oldest rides in that park is one of the original whips. Yes, of course. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's there in all of its spine mangling glory. You know, oh, I love it. So I'm I'm under orders to to get some video uh, of that as well. But yeah, that no, I can't linger in Philly. You know, I was going to grab a cheesecake in the car and drive up the Dorney Park, but now you're telling me about a tiki bar. Mm. Also, we were talking about things closing. On August 27th, the Leica Life in Stop Motion exhibit that, uh, at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens, New York, will be shutting down uh, again on that same day, August 27th. Now, I, I want to be clear here. We don't confuse the, the exhibit that's in Queens with the one that opened, uh, what, at the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle uh, back in March yeah. of this year? Hidden Worlds. The films of Leica, that's supposed to, to run in Seattle through the summer of 2024. And I really, really, really want to get to see that one because don't they supposedly have, what, it, concept art and maybe a few rigs from Wildwood, their next movie on display there? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. That makes me want to go even more. Well, I mean, I already did. <laughs> But mm -hmm. okay, yeah, that sounds great. Okay, um, right. yeah, that was the one that I heard was really special. Okay, the one, yeah, and, and I think they have a rig mm -hmm. where you can actually do stop motion mm -hmm. animation and sort of see your character move. And yeah, we okay. love Leica. We do, we do. All right, now, now <laughs> let's talk about something I haven't quite made my mind up about yet because I've only seen thirty seconds of this, but. Playdate with Winnie the Pooh. Now, we've already established on the show because you went to Annecy this year, and but you were the, the busiest man on the planet. So they showed or they showcased 
Playdate with Winnie the Pooh there. Did you get to see any of this while you were in I did. I missed the TVA presentation, mm. so I did not get to see it. Okay, okay. Now, kind of lay this out. This is something that is aimed at a very specific audience. This is aimed at preschoolers. And in fact, it's actually a two-part project because there's the Playdate with Winnie the Pooh, which is the series of shorts, but it will also be supported by me and Winnie the Pooh, which is a vlog-style set of, of shorts aimed at preschoolers. And this all debuts this coming Friday, uh, March 18th, on Disney Junior, Disney Junior On Demand, and Disney Now. Look, I know from what I've read online already that there are Disney fans who are losing their minds because... Winnie the Pooh and Tigger are not being voiced by the great Jim Cummings. Uh, you know, he, he normally does Pooh's voice for virtually everything that Disney does with this character. Uh, but, you know, the, again, the conceit is this is a young Pooh. Here's the bullet point for the show. It's like a young Pooh bearer who enjoys playdates with his friends and set in the exciting outdoors of the Hundred Acre Woods, these musical shorts emphasize collaborative play and the joy of spending time with others. And again, Drew, you, you've, you've only seen the, the 30 seconds that they pushed out there. Do we have thoughts? Well, I'm just still very brokenhearted about the Cartoon Saloon Winnie the Pooh project not going forward. So, I mean, th these are fine. There, to me, there's just very little mm -hmm. interest for a man of my advanced age. But mm -hmm. you know, I think I think the designs look good. I think you mm -hmm. know it's a cute aesthetic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they seem to be chasing that kind of like almost bluey demographic. There we go. There we yeah. go. Okay. And the cradle to grave, you know, business plan where it's like, what fascinates me is kids are introduced to poo at a fairly young age, but the whole notion of, no, we need preschool poo. In fact, wasn't that the point of the show from the, uh, the mid, uh, mid to late 2000s, My Friends, Tigger and Pooh, the, the first CG Winnie the Pooh thing? Do, oh, do, you, do you remember that Darby and, yeah. and her dog? And I think that I think that children need to be scared witless by <laughs> human beings in giant puppet suits, like I was. You know, that was really. This is why I keep a knife under my pillow uh, when I sleep because I, God forbid, those monstrosities come through the door. But if anyone ever, what was that called, Jim? Well, I see you're confusing. Welcome to Pooh Corner. Yes. From the launch of the Disney Channel. Yes. And then there was the Book of Pooh, and that was done with that Japanese puppetry technique. And this oh, one, that one was much gentler than I, I yeah, think. Yeah, would have yeah. Yes. Whereas Darby and her her little dog friend and. And, you know, Tigger and Pooh would regularly dress up as superheroes to protect the Hundred Acre yes, Wood. Yes, that's right. This is Disney. They continually look for ways to get Pooh out there. And, and again, I, what Drew just said is true. I mean, the designs are, are clever, and I can see this, you know, in a very much in a bluey sort of way. So it'll be interesting to see how folks react to this. And getting getting Pooh out there, Jim, was also a problem that I had when I got back from Europe. <laughs> You know, after that long flight. So it cannot be just stay <laughs> night, lady. Uh, that is. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Tip your waitresses. Okay. You know, just sort of like, oh, God. All Try right. the veal. Okay. Yeah. 
totally, totally, totally changing the subject here. But again, for an incredibly good cause. Have you heard about this thing they're doing at the uh, the Give the Kids the World Village in Central Florida? They unite with Linda Larkin and Jonathan Freeman. No, that sounds great. And Drew is not wrong. I mean, Linda Larkin, the speaking voice of Princess Jasmine in the hand-drawn version of Aladdin, released at theaters November 1992, and the great Jonathan Freeman, who has been the voice of Jafar, or more to the point, the persona of, of yes. Jafar. I mean, six years on Broadway in, in the musical version of Aladdin. And having had the opportunity to interview both of these people, they are wonderful, wonderful storytellers. And again, it's an evening. You know, you buy admission to this thing. First of all, you get to go into the Give the Kids the World Village, which 99% of the time is closed off to the rest of the planet. It's just for the, the families of, of the children who are there for their special trips to the various Central Florida attractions. So you get to go there. You get to see the amazing architecture and you know the feature. But at the same time, you, you get to hear... Linda Larkin and Jonathan Freeman tell stories about, you know, the various projects they've worked on, their time at Disney. And and then afterwards, depending on, you know, which package you buy here, there'll be a meet and greet opportunity, a photo. But trust me, if I were down in Florida on August 26th, this would be where I'd be. Do I need to send, I'm friendly with Scott, do I, we need to send an email and get him down there too? I mean... He he and Linda too have still have such great chemistry. Anytime they show up at D twenty three together or whatever, oh. I feel like I'm going to have to send him an email after this this call, Jim, and we we have to get him down. That would be cool to, to get Scott and Linda again together. Holy cow, yeah. that's a great idea. Yeah, but you're right. They're they're all lovely people, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sure they will regale everyone with their finest anecdotes mm-hmm. and memories from production. But again, if you want more information, head on over to the Give Kids the World website and you can find out about this on-site event. Also, as we, we begin to close out this week's show, just want to remind you folks that the writers and actors strike is still going on. Did you see this thing that, that Spencer Graham, who, who voices Morty's sister on Rick and Morty, what she shared through social media this past week about... When she worked on the first season, worked on Rick and Morty, she was being so being paid so little. She didn't make enough to qualify for the the SAG after a health insurance during the first year of her child's life. Oh my God! Yeah, and Alan Tudyk, you know, got on social media right after Spencer posted this, and Alan put out there that look, if you voiced every episode in a Rick and Morty season. You know, a performer would be roughly paid $15,000 total. And what's interesting is that the producers have been very successful over the years in keeping pay very low for voiceover actors. They did, I mean, mind you, The Simpsons and Family Guy are, are, you know, sort of outliers to that. But the rest of the industry, not so well paid. And speaking of, of voice actors, uh, wanted... To close out this week's show, Drew and I offering our heartfelt condolences to the friends and family of, of Johnny Hardwick, uh, who was the voice of Dale Gribble on King of the Hill. Uh, he just passed away this past week at the age of 64, and we don't have a whole lot of information about what went on here, but 
the folks at 20th uh, Television Animation of Hulu, which, by the way, they, they, it was it back in January of this year's, right? They, they announced the revival of, of King of the Hill. Yeah, that's that's imminent as yeah. far as I know. Yeah. Yeah, and they they just put out that look, Johnny Hardwick was an incredibly beloved member of the King of the Hill family, whose tremendous talent, brilliant humor, and friendship will be deeply missed by all who, who were fortunate enough to work with him over the past twenty five years. And and that's the thing. He was, you know, he wasn't just you know the voice of, of Dale and all his amazing conspiracy theaters. He, uh, theories. He was also a writer on the show and a story editor, and and over time became a producer. So, kind of a tough break to lose him, just as they're getting the revival up out of the ground. And so, again, uh, Drew and I offer our our heartfelt condolences there. And uh, beyond that, uh, Drew, so so what is going on over on Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast this week? I believe this week, well, now I don't want to say because <laughs> we, we haven't gotten the episode approved yet, Jim. This is These are the new hurdles that mm-hmm. uh, face a man mm-hmm. within the company. But I can say broadly in the next few weeks, we've got great interviews mm-hmm. with Lauren Balf, the composer oh. of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, mm-hmm. who also did Fallout. Um, really interesting stuff there. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as we've got Rebecca Ferguson. We've got... Who else do we have? We have a ton of people. And, uh, yeah, obviously all recorded before the strike began. Yep. But, uh, you know, the strike does oper- offer us an opportunity, Jim, which is to mm-hmm. dig deep into the below-the-line people that we love to talk to so much. And, um, no, yeah. You, and did, I, what I love about what you and Charles do is that you take those opportunities with folks who worked in the Mission Impossible movies and then dig down into the other films they've worked on and the crazy stories you get them to yes. share. It's just, it's so much fun. Hopefully we, I mean, we haven't had an opportunity to bring up Color of Night mm-hmm. uh, in a while, mm-hmm. but hopefully that will happen Ooh. again soon because a lot of a lot of Color of Night mm-hmm. crossover gem, we love to hear stories about. Mm-hmm. If you want a really obscure <laughs> Disney movie from the 90s, it's a <laughs> <Very> <laughs> absolutely insane very... erotic thriller with... Yeah, Bruce Willis and the lovely and I don't know what happened to her Jane March. I don't know where she was in that Tarzan movie too. She do you was, remember that? Yeah, she was. Yeah, but again, you know, face it. When when you're thinking erotic thrillers, the name Disney immediately comes to mind. You know, just it, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> okay. Speaking of Disney, of course we have here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. We have the Disney Dish I do with Len Testa. We have Marvelous Disney. Uh, which I do with Aaron Adams. Uh, also has his own Patreon project, 32nd Street, which explores the world of advertising. And in fact, uh, Brian Gahn and I later today will be recording a brand new Looking at Lucasfilm where uh, we'll actually circle back on a topic that, that Drew and I chatted on uh, just this last show where we lost Paul Rubens. We're going to uh, take a closer look at him and his association with Star Tours and Star Wars Rebels and the like. Um, let's see. Beyond that, social media. So we're still doing the X. We're still doing the Twitter, but also Mammoth? Mastodon? No, not Mammoth. Okay. Uh, Blue Sky okay. and Threads, although I haven't really posted on either of those. You know, the whole the whole disintegration of Twitter has really bummed me out I know. on social media, but... Yeah, I don't know. Still plugging away. 
social media wise, uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media, and over at Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. Uh, finally, folks, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, Fine Tuning, but also uh, Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. That, that would be a big help. And I guess that's going to do it for now. So, uh, again, I, I, I want to hear all about what it was like to go see uh, Tron Legacy at, at the Academy tonight. You, you have seen movies there before, right? Or I ha- In fact, I was just there for the Elemental World premiere. Oh. A few weeks ago, um, damn it! Yeah, it's an it's an amazing theater, the big the mm. big globe theater. Mm-hmm. So next time you come out, Jim, okay, we'll do uh, it. We'll... Let's take a look and see what they're playing, and mm. maybe there'll be something fun that we can go. All right, stop we'll, by. And... Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. But till then, folks, uh, thanks for listening, and we will be back soon.